Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right, welcome to Skylight Books, everybody. Thank you for coming. My name is Amanda Fletcher, and I am the Emerging Voices Fellowship Manager. Uh, just for ease of delivery, we're just going to call that EV. So if you're like, what is EV? Emerging Voices. Some people like to shorten it to EVF, and then it makes me think of fertility. So let's not do that. It's weird. Okay, so this is the 2018 PEN America Emerging Voices Meet and Greet, where fellows and mentors, past and present, will talk about their experience in this literary mentorship and answer your questions about the 2019 application, which is open now until August 1st. Let's see if I could find one of these sheets. So we have these apply cards. Uh, if it's not on your seat or if you need one, Stacy's got them at the drinks table. We also have some extra ones, like shoved under a table here somewhere, so we'll find those for you. Uh, we've been doing this event for years. Uh, I think, Johnny, did we do this in our year? We did. So we've been at Skylight for, for five or six years. Um, this is the most amazing bookstore. Like, how many bookstores have a tree in the middle? Like, seriously. Does anybody ever see Skylight on movies and they're like, that's Skylight! Uh, that show Love on Netflix? It's on that show. Just FYI. I don't know. Los Angeles. It's got to be on TV, you know? So this is the first time, though, that we'll be presenting as PEN America. So that's really exciting. Uh, and what that means for emerging voices is that potentially we'll be reaching a larger audience of writers that could use this fellowship. And that makes me really happy. And towards that end, we are streaming live on Facebook on the PEN America accounts. So yeah, no pressure, guys. You'll be reading in front of the nation. Uh, but uh, also what that means is we'll be able to take questions from all over the country. So when we come to the question and answer period, hopefully um, we'll have some questions from the Facebook, the interwebs. That's kind of cool. The only issue is that uh, we, we accept applications from all over the country, but you do have to relocate to Los Angeles for the duration of the fellowship. So if anybody's here that doesn't live here, you need to live here from January to July-ish. Right, Juby? Yeah, because now our final reading is August 3rd. Plug for the final reading. And that is not in July. That is in August. And Juby can't go back to Miami until after that, or he's fired. Hi, panel. What's up? Oh, my God, that was so cute. It was like a... So we only have one mic tonight. And I just, like, all in my head, I'm just thinking of Bernie Mac saying, three temptations, one mic. So we'll be passing it around. So that, I don't know, it's, it's been in my head all night. So we, it might be kind of weird, like we have a little bit of a shuffle going on up here where I'm saying something, passing the mic off, you know, the EVs, the 2018 EVs are going to come up and they're going to read this, like these short essays that they've written about their experience in the fellowship. So like bear with us that we're doing like some strange dance up here at the front. I appreciate it. So we also have a 2012 EV came all the way here from Texas just to be on this panel. Just keep telling everyone that. It's totally not true. 2012, Johnny Alfie. Hi. Thanks for coming. 
And then the panelists. I want to talk about the panelists. So. What, who we have up here, we have 2015 mentor Lim Thompson, we have 2017 mentor Dr. Ashaki M. Jackson, and we have 2018 mentor Douglas Manuel. And I want to tell you how we ended up with three mentors here tonight, because, you know, I think of mentors, past and present, and alumni as like truffles, like really expensive truffles. Like, you know, you don't, you like, shave a tiny little bit and then you like put it away and you don't use it and you like it's in the dark cupboard and you don't want to like bother it or whatever and I sent out an SOS because we had a really hard time finding a mentor that I hadn't already begged to come to the welcome party or begged to do this last year or you know begged to sit on the selection committee because I don't want to time anybody out and the result was that we ended up with like truffle fries truffle pizza truffle mac and cheese so let's have a hand for, for the truffles. It's like, my heart and my stomach are full, theoretically, metaphorically. So what is Penn and what is this thing that we call EV? Penn America is the US branch of the world's leading international literary and human rights organization. And that organization is Penn International. Did I say that already? We champion the freedom to write, recognizing the power of the word to transform the world. According to countless studies, as I'm sure you all know, UC Berkeley, Harvard Business School, etc., stories change our brains, building empathy and understanding, and that is why I think Emerging Voices is so important. Let's think of these, uh, you might say, outsider writers telling their outsider stories, and you can literally, you guys can literally change the world. And I think that's not an overstatement, and I also think that's super cool. The Emerging Voices Fellowship is a national literary mentorship. It's been run out of the LA office for 22 years. And we, while we have always accepted applications nationally, I think that there has been some uh, confusion in the past if that is, that is in fact the case. Uh, so I'm gonna be like national, I said it in like a really big letters here. It's national fellowship guys, national, national. It, it, blah, blah. The aim of the fellowship is to provide new writers without advanced degrees in creative writing who are isolated from the literary establishment with the tools, skills, and knowledge they need to launch a professional writing career. As an EV applicant, you are a writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, or poetry. And perhaps you aren't published, totally fine. You might not even know any writers, totally fine. But you need to have a clear idea of what you hope to accomplish through your writing. And what that means is there needs to be a project. You're gonna be asked to um, submit a project proposal. So you need to have some pages. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to listen to some short essays written by the current fellows, and then we're also going to break down, um, this is not the right card, we're going to break down what is offered through the fellowship in the seven months. So this card is available, like I said, here, it's available online, um, so you should be able to find these components. Uh, you receive guidance from a professional mentor, private author evenings with writers, agents, and publishers, genre-specific master classes, UCLA Extension Writers Program generously donates two classes to each fellow, there's a professional voice class, a submission workshop, you leave with author photos and a, and a professional bio as well as like a succinct description of your project that we like to call a log line. There's a thousand dollar stipend, you participate in a volunteer project, and there are three public readings where the EVs are featured and Penn tries to make sure that we fill the room.
While this fellowship continues to shift to meet the needs of new writers in an ever-changing publishing industry, these core components remain and will remain. So I'd, I'd like to start this, this evening thinking about what does it mean to be isolated from the literary establishment? The answer is that can mean a lot of things and the onus is on you as the applicant to convince us that you are in fact isolated from the literary establishment. Uh, I just read Educated by Tara Westover. Has, an, has anyone read this? It's amazing. And she's at school and she's talking about, um, she's learning about uh, philosophical idea of free will and this idea of negative and positive liberty. And I've been thinking about that as it relates to emerging voices. And I think that there are obvious external barriers for a lot of writers, and those in could include race, class, geography, age, gender identity, visible disabilities. But then there are also those hindrances that we don't recognize immediately. And I want you to think about all the roadblocks you've experienced in your writing career that you know someone might not, it might not be really readily apparent and other people might not know about. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first reader, 2018 fellow, Francisco Uribe. I like to think as the EVs as the Beatles, you know. Uh, and I always said I'm the quiet one, but I've really been reflecting on it. I think I'm more like Pete Best, the one nobody remembers, because that's how quiet I am. Um, yeah. So here's my uh, outreach essay. My family was never much into literary books. They read cheap paperbacks that cost less than a dollar. The stories printed on thin the stories were printed on thin newsprint. My mother bought a libro semanal weekly. The covers of those books often had sultry-looking housewives in tears. With titles like Lismosnera de Amor, which translates to Beggar of Love. My father liked his westerns. Every time he went to Ensenada Market on Gardena Boulevard, he picked up the latest story by Marcia La Fuente Stefania. Those covers, I remember them well. Desperate men in dire straits. I found their books everywhere, in the bathroom, the living room, the kitchen. I would pick them up, wanting to read them, but I struggled. At six years, I was already more comfortable with English words and, and simple sentences. One day, a salesman walked up to our apartment and sold my mother two sets of encyclopedias. She didn't normally buy things from traveling salesmen. In fact, because my, mo my mother didn't speak English, she rarely answered the door to strangers. But I think my mother felt sorry for the man. He lugged the heavy books, and she allowed him to give his sales pitch. My mother ended up buying one complete set of World Book Encyclopedia and one set of the Child Craft Edition. A complimentary subscription to uh, Sue Books was included. When my father came home, he saw the books with their hardcovers and gilded pages. He knew they were expensive. We lived in a two-bedroom apartment. In one room, my father, mother, and sister, and I slept. And the other, my aunt, slept with her husband. In the living room, my three uncles spent their nights. One on the sofa, two on the floor. We always needed money for rent and food. My father told my mother she had to return the books. My mother stood her ground. She called for my sister and me and told us to read something from the Childcraft Encyclopedia. My father listened, not saying a word. A few days later, he built us a bookcase. In the days before the internet, those books were my window to unknown worlds and histories. 
They were my literature. In elementary school, I wanted to play for the Dodgers when I grew up, so I read about Jackie Robinson and Babe Ruth. In middle school, when I wanted to be a professional boxer, I, wanted, I read about Jack Dempsey and Muhammad Ali. I learned all I could about, about essays of both world wars. Now, excuse me, tearing up here is so sad. It's just a sweat. It's really. But I should have played it off, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I read about Jack Dempsey and Muhammad Ali. I learned all I could about the essay, uh, aces of both world wars and the planes that flew, the, pl the planes they flew when I wanted to be a fighter pilot. After reading Call of the Wild, I looked up Jack London's short biography. I wrote down the titles to some of his other books and sought them out at the school library. I did the same with Steinbeck, Hemingway, and countless others because reading one author leads to a thrilling discovery of another. Back then, it seemed like all the answers could be found within the pages of the World Book Encyclopedia. I didn't start writing for myself until I was in community college. There I was trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do, and I explored many creative paths, music, painting, and filmmaking. I ended up taking all the film analysis and production classes that the college had to offer. I was determined to be the next Fellini. I began to write down stories that someday I hoped I would direct. As I began to write, I realized there are limits and restrictions to filmmaking. In writing, there are no limits. As I wrote more, I wanted more out of my stories. I wanted to be able to create worlds that would haunt, thrill, excite, and romance the reader but I lacked the skill to be able to do so. So I began to look for opportunities to improve myself as a storyteller. When I applied for the Fan Emergent Voices Fellowship, I had taken a lot of classes on my own, but I didn't think I could ever call myself a writer. I believe there were only, there was only one mode for writers, which I didn't fit. In my mind, a writer was someone who had an MFA, had traveled extensively, and came from a privileged class. Throughout our author evenings, I came to realize that writers are as diverse in their background as they are in their approach to their craft. I still have those encyclopedia sets. I've never asked my mother why she bought them. She could not read them, but she liked it when my sister and I read them to her, even if she did not understand. She must have known that the mere act of reading will lead to something special, and it has. It led me to try and understand my own stories. Okay, so Frankie, you talk about author evenings. Hi, Jess. Sorry, another EV in the back. What up? You talk about author evenings, so tell us what an author evening is. Give us, tell, tell us like one of your favorite ones, what happens, what we do, yada yada. Well, I can't sing out. I can't like single out the one. Uh, they, they all had something to offer, and like uh, the ones that stand out are the ones that just really made me think about how, how they got there, and like uh, Charles, you didn't get an MFA. Uh, that one stood out. Uh, Percival Everett telling the story about if he saw somebody with talent, he would just tell them, you know, don't even come out of my class because uh, sometimes it just, that, that's not the best path. It wrecks you as a writer. So th those are the ones that really stand out. But really, they all had something to offer. Um, so I can't really single out everything. What, we, what is not 
Well, we come in and we're prepared uh, to the to the wheel. Sh to the wheel. All right, let me break it down. So we, I get there by. Oh, I'm getting there. Hold on. <laughs> I get to the I get to the office. Well, no, I get I buy my coffee at the right. I park by that park. I can't no, I don't know the name. Well, I see a good park, right? I'm usually 30 minutes early, so I go get coffee. I'm looking over the questions that I'm gonna ask. Uh, I've I've read the works, or I've done the research on the agents, or whoever's uh, being there. Excuse me, um, and then. Yeah, and everybody else gets there. Uh, if yeah, I wish I had more to say, but really, like, I'm the quiet one. But the best thing about author evenings is just when the author is just really honest with you, and they tell you, you know, how hard it was to be a writer, uh, because it is hard. You know, they don't, they don't make it seem easy. They don't tell you, like, oh, yeah, you're going to you know, walk out with a fellowship with a book in hand. No, it's hard work, you know. And so when they're honest with you and you're honest with them, that's when you get the most out of the author readings. They all have something great to offer. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Frankie. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. So... I'm going to just like break that down a little bit more. So author evenings uh, happen either at the pen office or often in the author's home. Uh, we meet usually on Monday nights, a couple times a month. Uh, we meet with agents, editors, local authors, publishers. Um, if it's a writer, we read their work and we come prepared with questions. And it's an intimate setting, so it's only the five fellows and the visiting author, or the, the, whoever the vi visiting professional is. So these guys really get a chance to talk about craft on a really intimate level. And um, I know for myself, 2012, like Janet, Janet Fitch, remember we went to Janet's house? Oh my God. What did I say to you guys, Pete, when we went to Janet's house, standing out front? Don't be weird. It's like I'm always like, just don't be weird, you guys. Uh, Amy Bender, Maggie Nelson, Raina Grande, Natasha Dion, Dan Smetanka from Counterpoint Press. Uh, we've met with agents BJ Robbins, Bonnie Nadell, Betsy Amster, and Sarah Bolin. Uh, this year there was a change in format and, and the agents actually let us speed pitch our projects, so that was something really cool. Um, so yeah, that, that's what happens in, during author evenings. So you get this really intimate chance to speak to someone who has made a career as a writer. And for some writers, for some EVs, this is the first time they've ever had that opportunity. So it's pretty cool. It's often like the favorite part of the fellowship. So I thought we'd start there with Frankie's essay. But because this is essentially a literary mentorship, we're going to circle back to mentorship. Fellows are matched with a mentor based off of many factors. Some, you know, what are they writing? What's the genre? What's their subject matter? What's their style? And we kind of try to match them with a mentor that reflects their style or is doing something that they're struggling with or something that they're really highlighting and it's kind of a way for them to really polish that aspect of their craft. I just lost my spot. 
So they, you come to your first meeting with a list of goals and you and your mentor sit and you discuss those goals. You get written feedback on pages that you present to your mentor, uh, reading recommendations, and oftentimes there's a fellowship, I mean there's a friendship that develops that, that you carry with you into your writing life. Past mentors have included Megan Dom, Harriet Mullen, Ben Laurie, Jade Chang, Amelia Gray, Mary Otis, Dinah Lenny, and J. Ryan Straddle. Juby Ariola Headley, our 2018 Poetry Fellow, joining us all the way from sunny Miami Beach. Why don't you read us a little something about mentorship? Sorry, y'all should never put me in front of an audience again. What am I? 40 pages of poems, that's the goal we'll set for you. You've got, what, six months till the end of the fellowship? It's like six or seven pages a month. Two pages a week. You can do that. Easy. He actually did that head movement. My mentor, poet, Doug Manuel, looked at me, wanting, waiting, I suppose, for me to agree that, yes, this is entirely reasonable. 40 pages, no sweat. His expression conveying a certainty I absolutely did not feel. Maybe for him, 40 pages was doable. He was the writer, not me. I was... What was I? If not for the Pan America Emerging Voices Fellowship, I can't imagine how I'd ever have let this sentence form in my mind, much less speak it out loud to another person. I'm a writer. Stop it. You behave. You behave. <laughs> He's trying to get me to cry. I feel it. I feel it. How could I be a writer, I used to think. A writer is someone who's published. A writer is somebody whose work other people want to read. I'd had these strictly production-oriented definitions of writer tattooed on my brain. That is, before I had the opportunity to sit down with Daniel Lisi, founder of Publishing House Not A Cup Media, who said this to me, you need to focus less on outcome and more on process. In other words, it's about the writing, stupid. Doug, ever the supportive and against all reason perennially ebullient mentor, labored to get me to see this. I've never seen him frustrated, but I suspect there might have been one or two moments he wanted to throttle this hard-headed student, which is to say me. He got me to understand that the key to becoming a writer, first, last, and always, is to write. He got me to commit to establishing a writing practice. Even if it's only 10 minutes a day, he urged. Set a specific time to do it. Come up with a ritual to prepare yourself to do it. Do whatever you need to get it done, but just do it. And so I did, tentatively, like when I was learning to swim. I didn't dive in at first, I more sort of waded in, anticipating the shock of ice-cold water or the pummeling of a huge wave. But to get this work of writing done, you've got to let go of the notion that every time you write, you need to produce Pulitzer Prize-winning material. Some days, I stare at the page and nothing comes. 
Some days I write three, four pages and look back and think, if I had a gerbil, I could line his cage with this. But every so often, on a good day, I come up with something that's good enough that I think I might not toss it in the trash. I have 25 pages down and 15 more to go to reach my goal. Well, thank you. Well, well this goal, miles I, to go before I sleep, to quote Robert Frost. Through the generosity of the Pan America Emerging Voices Fellowship, ah, uh, crap, I am so sorry. Here we go. I've had the opportunity to meet with published writers of fiction, poetry, and memoir. And chief among the great pearls of wisdom they've shared with me is this. This is the work of being a writer. It's no magic pill, no chemical formula, no hack, no listicle that can help you be a writer. If you want to be a writer, first, last, and always, you have to write. So that's what I'm going to do, because that's what I am. I am a writer. Stop it. I'm a writer. Thank you. He cried. I love it. It was sweat. It was sweat like Frankie had the sweat. Uh, I, I don't like the, I'm going to like make a get off my lawn statement and I'm like, I don't like the technology for reading off of. I get it. Yeah. Douglas Manuel has a bio as long as my arm that I will truncate by saying that he is currently a Middleton and Dornsai Fellow at the University of Southern California where he is pursuing a PhD in literature and creative writing. And you know, his first full-length collection of poems testify, it just won the 2018 IBPA Benjamin Franklin Award in Poetry. <laughs> Boom! Yeah. So Doug, why did you agree to be Juby's mentor and what is the next one? And how did you come up with this list of like 40 pages? Where'd that come from? Um, as soon as you showed me Juby's work, I was right there. Um, as far as just psychic weight and just control on the page right from the get-go, I was like, oh, this seems like something I can work with. This seems like I can do something with this. And so when I see like any student or anybody's work that I feel like I can do something with, I'm like, but then what could they do with it? So it's about, you know, trying to enable them to their voice. So that's what made me really want to work with Juby, just seeing the, how strong the work was. And 40 pages, I just thought to myself, like, I did math really quickly of thinking, like, well, what if you're going to have, we always talk about having a writerly life. So we put it in every day, right? We put in work every day. So I thought to myself, what's something that sounds reasonable? And at first I was at 60, but then I was like, <laughs> I was like, you hear that laugh? So I was like, oh, is he going to wild out? Is he going to wild out? And so then I uh, kept on thinking, and so 40 felt nice. You know, um, um, I'll always be culturally Catholic, so it felt like a good lit or something like that, if you will. So. Do you have anything you want to add what, right now while you have the mic? Oh my goodness, I'm one of those people, if you put a mic in front of me, I'm like, yes, I would like to tell you everything, everything. Uh, but no, um, I think the most, uh, I want to say how important this has been for me. Um, working with somebody like Juby who wants to grow so much and then is also willing to work, like, it makes it easy. But at the same time, as you said, like, I feel like I've really gained a friend. Like, you know, when we have our little meetups, you know, like, 
a lot of it's about writing, but sometimes I'm just like, well, what's good? Tell me about it. And then we just sit down and like really chop it up. And I think, you know, to have somebody in my life who, you know, I didn't know from Sam, who now I like for real see as a homie, like really matters to me. So that's the other thing that's important to me as well. Thanks, Dougie. Little Dougie, everybody. Dr. Jackson, I'm going to call on you to talk about mentoring Soleil David last year. Ashaki is the author of two chapter-length books of poetry, Surveillance and Language Lessons. She's a Cave Canem and Vona alum, and she serves on VITA's executive board. Ms. Jackson, as a commentary on the mentor-mentee relationship, would you mind reading the intro that you wrote for Soleil's final reading last year? I sure do. Do you want to get up? Okay. Yay! Let's give Miss Jackson a hand. Just familiarizing myself. Okay. Um, and if she's watching on Facebook, hi, sweetie. Children of activists bear a special inheritance. Their parents gift them memories of survival. We listen to the pivot when life changed and being still meant death. For my family, it was six years prior to my birth when Louisiana law enforcement hunted my father for his role in bringing financial and staff support to the local black university. Through his stories, I carry the scent of chemicals, the tear gas used to force my parents, college students at the time, from the administration building and into a barricade of armed officers. I carry the sound of gunfire intended for my father. Soleil, too, is the keeper of her family's beleaguered escape. In this, we are kin. Soleil can tell you the texture of the marshland through which her parents waited to escape persecution under Ferdinand Marcos's torture-laden dictatorship. Her parents have passed down to her the hollow sound of boot to flesh, first heard as the president's men battered, then captured her father in a garden. She can tell you the scent of blooms, the time of day, and the humidity's tech. Upon reading Soleil's narrative poetry, I understood that my mentee had lessons for me. She would teach me how to craft textured yet honest memories to which our families would say, yes, that is how it happened. These memories would become clean and artful despite their blood. They would be strengthened through, their, through her coursework and program instructor's guidance on how to echo her parents' accounts. Indeed, Soleil's work is familiar. It speaks to oppression and distrust, a well-dressed and inept government, an uprising all quite relevant to each of us in this space. In the safe space afforded by Penn Center USA and the Emerging Voices Fellowship, she experimented with the type of truth-telling and calling out for which her parents might have lost their lives. 
but oh how comfortable she has become during the program year in speaking her family's mind with a lushness and resistance that only the Philippine landscape can reflect. Both the cicadas and guns have a song for the trees. Bruises bloom among flowers. She gives us easy language that comforts and rebels, much like the mendacities of her parents, much like the mendacities her parents told her siblings while fleeing the country. Two, she gives us biting questions without answers. She asks, what does it mean to be so ready to flee a country you would die for? I'm gonna try this in her dialogue. And Papa, akala ko ba matapeng tayo? E bakit tayo tumatakpo? Or Papa, aren't we courageous? Then why are we running? The memories of survival are rhetorical. After a year of cleaning memories, Soleil carries what she ought. What, as children of activists, is our responsibility, if not to tell these stories again in the most prolonged protest, a written one? And then it's my pleasure to introduce my kin and teacher, Soleil David. See how I got that for you, Soleil? That was for you, girl. Um, but honestly, I feel like this is something that we've just started doing in the last couple of years, is that we've asked the mentors to write, uh, you know, three to five hundred words to introduce their fellow for the final reading. And it's just so, so powerful and beautiful and amazing. I feel like it's like, okay, thanks, Ashaki. Next. Um, <laughs> but seriously, talk, can you talk a little bit about the, um, the idea of the relationship being reciprocal and how you learn from the fellow as well? I think first I should characterize a bit of my work. Um, it's definitely about loss, the closeness of, of kin, um, processing death, mortuary rights. So it's it's been a long time since I've actually heard it from someone else and I'm not giving the grief. Um, I mentioned to someone earlier that I'm known in my, my writing collective as the sad one. <laughs> the one who's gonna make you cry, and I'm pretty consistent with that. Um, but to, to hear Soleil reach into her family's history and to process not only the panic of the escape, but also the, the tenuousness of losing loved ones and giving narrative to that is something that I did not necessarily consider. I am so much in my feelings about the loss and the panic that I don't hear, I didn't hear my characters. So sitting with Soleil and hearing her um, describe what her father said or what her siblings remember her parents saying while rushing through the marshland made me think, okay, well what were my characters feeling? What were their experiences? Um, and, and how does that characterization kind of enrich the narrative that I'm trying to convey? How does that 
participate in providing cues to the reader about the emotion that's welling up in this in this poetry. So Soleil taught me at least that my voice is the, isn't the only one relevant in the writing. I'm so selfish. <laughs> she had to teach me to stop. Thanks, Soleil. Thanks, Ashaki. All right, so uh, as, as we mentioned, fellows are matched with the mentor based off their writing samples, their interview responses, and a particular way that the writer's work happens to fit. Winner of the Tucson Literary Award in Poetry in 2017, the Stephen Dunn Poetry Prize in 2016, and a Master Artist Fellowship from the City of Los Angeles for 2015-16, the lovely Lynn Thompson is the author of Start With a Small Guitar and Beg No Pardon. Lynn was matched with poet Octavia Allison in 2015, and I want to tell me why you think that that was an auspicious match. Um, Octavi was a good reminder for me about how nervous we all are about being perceived as writers. We're constantly struggling with that. Can I tell one really short story? Um, I did a workshop with Carolyn Kaiser, a poet some of you may know name or reputation, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, very tall, elegant lady. We were all kind of scared of her. Very down to earth though. So someone asked her, they said, oh, Miss Kaiser, you know, it must have been easy for you after you won the Pulitzer Prize. She said, not so much. She said, I got rejected after the same way I had gotten rejected before. So that kind of stunned us all that, you know, you've reached this so-called height and you're still, what have you done? lately. In terms of Octavi, I think one of the things that I hope I did for her, and hopefully, she, hi Octavi, she moved, so, um, uh, was really give her confidence about what she was doing, because she did have a practice every day of writing and how she wanted to write, and, and was a little worried that maybe she wasn't as far advanced as her fellow fellows. Um, and I would tell her, you know what? We're all trying to advance, so don't worry about the others around you. Um, and it, it, what she did for me really was to remind me that if you've had one story published, a chapter of your memoir, short story, you are always responsible for being a good poetry citizen. That's kind of my thing in life. People have helped me every minute of every day with my writing, and I so appreciate that, that she taught me don't ever forget that someone who thinks you've done something, which of course I haven't really done anything, um, thinks you have, and so to the extent that helps them, that's your job is to help them. So I, I really think part of the pairing for us was for me to do my job to help her with confidence and she reminded me that is your job. You know, for that time that you're not writing your 40 pages and you go, duh. <laughs> Seriously. Oh my God. Um, you know what I said. Um, is, is, is to do that. So I think, I think that was the exchange that we had. Thank you, my three temptations. My truffle temptations.
I love that you said that there there's a space for all of us because it leads us into Angela M. Sanchez's essay. Um, each mentoring mentee, mentor-mentee relationship is very unique, and I will say Angela has a particularly unique relationship with her mentor, who is 2013 EV Lilium Rivera. Um, Lilium has decided to look at Angela's entire manuscript, so you never know what can happen. Don't you know, get your hopes up that that'll happen for you. They're only required to look at 50 or 60 pages, but you never know what could happen. Right, Angela? You look terrified up there. All right. Both of them are like the most overachieving people I've ever met in my life. They're like the perfect match. So let's have Angela come up. And I'm terrified because I just, I sent Lilium my full manuscript uh, just a couple weeks ago and she's reviewing it right now, so, oh god. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so again, Angela Sanchez, and just a quick uh, plug, my children's picture book, self-published, Scruffy and the Egg, is carried here at Skylight Books, and it deals with some of the subject matter I'm going to mention in this personal essay right now. For the first two months that my father and I were homeless, we motel hopped, switching spots every two weeks when the motel's 14-day stay limit came up. Since none of the shelters in my hometown took men and children, or teenage girls in my case, the motel stays meant I could continue going to my high school. One of the lessons being homeless taught me was to make the most of what you got. These motels offer two things I never had at home. Wi-Fi television and cable TV. When I started high school, I got way into Japanese comics. Like any manga fan, I wanted to consume as much as I could. Having cable meant I could watch the anime adaptations of my favorite comics. This was before YouTube and online streaming services were popular. And Wi-Fi allowed me to find my way into the online manga fanfiction community. It quickly became my portal into another world, distracting me from the daily fear of whether or not my dad and I had a place to spend the night. As I read, I picked up on the writing techniques of the most popular fanfiction authors, their realistic dialogue, plausible scenarios, and the vivid details. After reading a simple flash fiction piece for the very first time, I thought, huh, I could do that. It seemed reasonable enough to give it a shot. Maybe not a whole story, but a snippet. Little steps. After getting a home again, after college, I transitioned from writing fan fiction to developing my own work. But I didn't know where I could submit my writing for the feedback it needed. In the online fanfiction world, feedback was often immediate, frequent, and brutally honest. I love it, you suck, and how dare you ship that couple. The normal IRL writing communities I knew of were inconsistent, and often paid writing classes were just flat out beyond my budget. For two years, in modest isolation, I worked on a series of short stories that gradually became the first draft of a novel. And I still liked writing about gutsy young adult protagonists. 
I discovered emerging voices in the acknowledgement section of Lillian Rivera's debut novel, The Education of Margot Sanchez. No relation. Lillian credited her success to the supportive community of the fellowship, a community of writers I knew I wanted to join. More than anything, I wanted a mentor, ideally a woman of color, like me, who would be able to share how she navigated the publishing process. After applying to and receiving the fellowship, I was paired with Lillian as my mentor, the very author whose book pointed me to E.V. in the first place. Once awarded the fellowship, I realized that its Pandora resources, from mentors to author evening hosts to masterclass instructors, were often supplied by authors whose own voices have been marginalized. Through E.V., I was able to experience the perspectives of authors who are historically sidelined or altogether ignored in traditional publishing. This is important to me because my odds are steep. Last year, the Cooperative Children's Book Center found that Latino authors account for under 3% of published children's book books, despite Latinos comprising nearly 20% of the U.S. population. With the feedback from Lilium, UCLA classmates, and fellow emerging voices, thank you guys, I've begun transforming my stitched together short stories into a fully cohesive novel. Following the fellowship's conclusion, I plan to stay immersed in the writing community, and there's so much to do, share, and participate in. As someone who has benefited from opportunity made by others in my life, I'm excited to offer what inroads I've made and what insights I've gained from emerging voices. The space is by no means a sum zero. No writer loses out because their friend was published first. Evie offers a community that is forever welcoming new family. And I can't wait to hear how those voices sound. Thank you. You can sit, I'll bring this to you. So I don't know if you guys have noticed that I'm like playing off the components of the fellowship from their essays. See how tricky that is? It's like weaving it through. So who's taking classes at UCLA Extension Writers Program? So expensive. I love you UCLA, you're the best. Um, but, so it's really kind of amazing that they donate to the fellowship a full length 10 to 12 week course and a one day workshop. So Angela, why don't you tell us about your UCLA class? Sure. Um, I feel awkward though, not uh, facing everyone. Yeah. Uh, let me see. So for the UCLA classes, um, I would say that it was finally the opportunity to get a lot of the feedback and to feel safe also putting my pages out there um, and getting the, and not saying like, not making a burden on say my best friend or my poor boyfriend who have read, you know, successive editions or snippets of the work that I've been on. I finally got to get fresh insight. And so having a community of other people who are also both receiving your work and who are also sharing with you some of the projects you're working on really helped me break out of the feeling that, oh, I'm so isolated here in my little bubble with my laptop. It gave me a real established sense of community. Another point is, is that I took my UCLA writers, um, the long-term writing course online. And 
I think that there's some feeling out there that, oh, will an online writing course help me achieve what I set out to do? Is it the same as, an in, is it not the same as an in-person one? And I would say specifically, at least for me, and picking out a writing course that specifically filled, filled the need that I had to have a cohesive story, coming in with six separate short stories, it did. The course I took was synopsis for the novel, so it really helped make all the stories that I had fit together and it helped me also feel okay with dropping some of these sections I just didn't need anymore. Getting feedback from my classmates and also from the instructor to really help level that out together. And it's so much fun to see what else other people are working on. So uh, I would finally also say that the one day course um, it was in person, it was with Lilium, so. uh, and <laughs> it was also the working on YA and it was a generative course. So she gave us prompts and we would write in spurts throughout the day and when I was completing my novel, oh my gosh, I used that document to pull my resources from. So I got to, uh, after having that day and then going back to work on my novel, I go, did I write about that at some point? Oh yes I did. And then pull out of there and just be able to draw upon the stuff you produce in a class is one of the best feelings ever. Having the other class produce, the online class produce a roadmap for me gave me a stronger sense of direction with my writing and my work. Thanks, Angela. I love when I ask Angela, I'm like, Angela, this is going to be your question. She's like, no problem. I'll have bullet points. They'll be like, it's amazing. PowerPoint presentation. Um, Prior to this, we have uh, we're operated in a situation where the administration has chosen the UCLA class for the student, um, which obviously we still will have input, um, but we're interested in you kind of deciding what's going to work better for you. I know with Juby, didn't have a car, lived in Culver City, was kind of cool not going on campus. You did one in one too, right? Yeah. Um, so we, we've kind of um, allowed the writer, you know, you guys are adults if you want to take a poetry class, but you are a creative nonfiction writer, I'm all right with that. If you can tell me why you think that's a good idea for you, you know? Um, let's move into, so the, the idea of like the space is by no means a sub-zero, I totally love that line. Uh, including these fellows up here. This is the first time you guys have been counted in public. 146 emerging voices. Uh, have have almost completed the fellowship, so don't mess it up. So I have to like change that, okay? Ron, Ron, you know you're the problem child. Uh, it's a special thing to be able to call yourself an emerging voice. EV alumni have published or have forthcoming almost 50 books and have literally received hundreds, hundreds of anthology, journal, print publication inclusions, grants, awards, and additional fellowships. Uh, let's just run through kind of what's happened in the last week. Uh, my predecessor, the inimitable, I want to use that word, but I was afraid I was going to be to say it. The inimitable Libby Flores who uh, defined this fellowship for eight years, just announced that she's the new director of audience development and digital production at Bomb Magazine. Libby Flores, you're the bomb. She's living her best literary life in NYC, and she was also recently interviewed for Slice Magazine, so you can catch up Missy Boo. Uh, Johnny, so what do you know about Chelsea Hodgson? Chelsea Hodgson just released a collection of essays. Sold out in the first printing. Sold out in the first printing. 
I'm just going to drop that. <laughs> what the hell? but like in an amazing way. Congratulations, Chelsea. Um, the collection is called Tonight I'm Someone Else. And guess what? Skylight sold out. It's okay, Skylight. We ain't mad. Uh, and then let's, you know, don't even get me started on the 2013 crew. Lillian Rivera's forthcoming second YA novel, excerpted in Teen Vogue last week. Miss Kima Jones published an essay in Roxane Gay's Unruly Body series for Medium Magazine. She's got a short story coming out with McSweeney's. Tommy Moore, Tommy Moore, first story in this collection, so way to go Tommy Moore. Uh, that's a lot, I feel like that's a bunch of people, right? So let's just like give a hand to, to EVs who obviously know how to write. So they know how to write, but do they know how to read? Like in public, like I hope they all know how to read, we got a problem. EVs are featured at three public readings over the course of the fellowship. There is a welcome party in January, which we have been lucky enough to be hosted by Lace Gallery in uh, Hollywood. The mid-program reading in April, which for the past few years we've done at the Hotel Cafe as part of the Tongue and Groove reading series. And the final reading at the end of July slash beginning of August, August 3rd, Moss Theater. Hope to see you all there. Um, I'm going to pull, Pete, can you, can you reach this? Can this reach you? Uh, tell me about the final reading. Oh, I didn't know I was going <laughs> to. I have a terrible memory, Amanda. <laughs> no, the final reading was, oh, okay, I remember. I remember. It was at, um, I'm not sure where it was at, but it, it was at Skirball Center. And it was, yeah. And the amazing part of it was that our mentors um, introduced us. And, you know, you work with these people for a few months and you get close to them, but you don't necessarily sit down and say, hey, what do you think of me? <laughs> but that didn't happen. But so you're sitting there and you're, oh, here's Jay Ryan. He's going to say some stuff about me. And he gets up and he talks about how I've been like an important part of his life for these months. Um, so it's like it's a small thing, but when somebody that's kind of a, a hero to you tells you that, it's, you, it's, it's it was really it was devastating in a in a really wonderful way. So that's the thing I remember most about that. Thank you. I couldn't ask these guys. It's not until August. They don't know. Uh, thanks, Pete. So, and we also are we heard um, Ashaki's a gorgeous introduction for Soleil. Um, the only hang-up in these public readings is that oftentimes some of these, ri these writers haven't read in public and they're like terrified. Right, Natalie? <laughs> they're terrified, that is, until they go through the voice class with professional voice actor Dave Thomas. So let's have Natalie, Miss Langmon, come up here and read her essay. Still a little terrified. Are we good? As a Mexican Filipino East Indian teen, I felt most comfortable in silence, scribbling words into notebooks, hoping my classmates couldn't see me. In the ninth grade, my cousins and widowed aunt came from India to live with us. I buried myself further in reticence as our tract 
San Fernando Valley home evolved into a revolving door for Punjabi-speaking Sikhs. When it was time to apply to colleges, my parents couldn't afford to send my cousins and I away. So I ended up at a local university where my department chair told me, you are a writer, you need to write. I thought that meant applying to graduate school to write papers and then to teach. Throughout grad school, I sat in seminars with sweaty hands and a palpitating heart. The curse of silence followed me. In American autobiography, I connected to silence voiced on the page. Rereading Maxine Hong Kingston for the third time, I identified with a narrator who walked between memories, between cultures, between hyphens. The narrator's mother slices her frenum so she could speak any language with ease. My tongue stuck, but something shifted in my mind. Reading Kingston, I realized I carried a story to tell that perhaps I could write story if I couldn't talk it. After finishing but feeling like I failed at grad school, I started writing classes and programs. One night while browsing on the web, I came across pen emerging voices and pushed it in the back of my mind. It took me four more years to enroll in my first writing class through UCLA Extension. I ended up in a class where the instructor had us read at the last bookstore. I could feel my legs shaking underneath. I sped through the words. I must not have done a terrible job because Amanda Fletcher handed me a card that said, you are a writer, apply. Two times I was told you are a writer with, a, with an imperative attached. So I did, I applied. As a pet emerging voice, I realized voice is key, not just the voice of the writer clacking onto a computer keyboard or capturing fle fleeting thoughts in a journal with frenzy. It's realizing, yes, speaking words does matter. When words emerge from print to sound, they begin to breathe another life. Dave Thomas, our voice coach, taught me that. As a memoirist, I felt vulnerable reading my sensitive piece. But with his feedback, I realized that what I wrote had weight. I could help someone understand their place, the world, the, their place in the world Maxine Hong Kingston had done for me. The night of the hotel cafe reading, I didn't shake. I took a breath and channeled words in a way I had, ne I had never done before. They carried through my body, through my voice. They made someone cry. My words mattered. Thanks, Natalie. Emotional. I bet you guys didn't think it was going to be this emotional. You're like, we came to re hear about this fellowship, and everyone's crying. Like, what's going on? Everybody's sweating. So crazy. Uh, so if you've ever heard a Home Depot commercial, uh, NFL Network commercial, BMW, NASCAR, you've heard Dave Thomas. Uh, this person is incredible. We've been working with him, I think, probably for 10 years. And um, you, are you ready? Are you, are you collected? Okay. So Natalie's going to tell us what happens on the day of the voice class. Can I stand up again? 
So the day of the voice class, we get to the studio really early, and we basically spend a day with Dave Thomas in the booth. Um, we take turns. As we t after we take turns, he gives us feedback. So when Evie will go in, we do our read. We think that we did an okay job, or a pretty good job. And then we'll walk out, and then he said, you sucked. But he doesn't say it like that. <laughs> it's basically like, this is what you did, um, and this is how you can make it better. And for me, as a memoirist, um, it's really difficult because you're so close to your words and the memories that um, it's sometimes hard to, to be able to read the words without like wanting to just like jump through the page. But he really told me and showed me how to take my time and how to feel that emotion. And that's where the channeling, it felt like it channeling the words because you're feeling it, but the words are important, not necessarily me as the author or the egos, the ego kind of dissipates. And he was really helpful in learning that process. Thanks, Natalie. Okay, so we're going to move right along to master classes. After completing the UCLA extension courses, the Emerging Voices Fellows are enrolled in a genre-specific masterclass. And what that means is that they get to workshop each other's pages. Our masterclass instructor for prose is Alex Espinosa. Yes. Oh. Alex, your kids are so, they miss you. And uh, F. Douglas Brown ha has been teaching our poetry some iteration. Yes, you clap. I only have one hand has been teaching some iteration of, of, of a poetry masterclass and we've kind of spent the last three years kind of trying to figure out like what's the best way to make that work when we only have one poet. And unfortunately for the last few years there has only been one poet. So we want to make sure that that person gets as much attention as possible. Um, Juby, do you want to tell us about your masterclass and like what happened and how it worked out for you? It was wonderful. Um, I feel a little blessed actually because as one poet, um, what Pan America has helped do for me is identify other poets in the community. So it's another way that Pan gets to help sort of pay it forward, pay it out. Um, we were able to invite a couple of other poets to be in class with me and honestly, um, my favorite thing about the class is F. Douglas Brown. If you ever get a chance to take a class with F. Douglas Brown, you should take a class with F. Douglas Brown. He's just so engaging and has a different way of teaching poetry than a lot of um, classes I've been in. Um, but also, um, the quality of the other poets um, just embarrassed me, honestly. There were days I was like, I brought what to class? So it really helped me raise my level and I think produce better work. So um, it's one of the, I think, most important aspects of the fellowship, that opportunity to get to work and fine tune um, your own poetry. but also learn how to workshop because it's not a it's a skill I think it's not um something that is innate you got to learn how to workshop effectively yes it's weird when you only have one hand um, like uh, do any of you guys want to comment on Alex see you do I know you guys do uh, 2017 Shinnerine Wodeman Okay. Um, I'll also give a co-sign to everything Juby said about um, F. Douglas Brown because I 
<laughs> took his master class yes, last year, even though I wasn't a poet. Um, and that's where I also first met Doug Manuel. So um, that was really a wonderful blessing in <laughs> the class. Um, for Alex, we had a really wonderful experience with him because there were four prose writers. And so we actually each just got one day dedicated to our work um, out of the month. And it was really amazing. Um, aside from his just knowledge and his awareness of, of craft and his ability to give insight into your own work, he's also just the best person. <laughs> um, he's really just full of kindness and thoughtfulness and really is just an amazing, amazing, amazing resource for the program. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I, I think now is when I'll drop in like the promo for the Emerging Voices podcast. Uh, look for that, uh, the first couple episodes in the next month or two. And our first guests, Alex Espinosa, F. Douglas Brown. Look at that. Look what we did there. <laughs> All right, so let's move along so we can ask some, you guys can ask some questions. Uh, let's return to that idea of literary isolation that we started with and community and what that means. I think it's kind of apparent when you see this panel and you see how everyone interacts with each other and that, that this is like some, like a literary family. Yes, does it seem like that? We're not doing a good job of showing that, I'm sorry. I'll try harder. Um, many writers come to the fellowship without knowing writer, other writers. Some have never met one. Uh, Angela, never taken a class. Yeah, you couldn't afford classes. What are you going to do? Uh, this is an expression of literary isolation. Just one of them. Vital aspects of being an emerging voice are the relationships that develop within your cohort and beyond. 2017s, never go anywhere without each other. If, it, if there's one, there's at least three, and the only reason the other two aren't here is because they don't live in Los Angeles anymore. <laughs> Love them. Um, but that beyond includes all of the alumni, mentors, masterclass instructors, author evening hosts. Like you know that whenever you go to a reading or a literary event in the city, you're going to know at least one person. So you never have to worry about going somewhere alone because you're not alone for long. Which is cool because if all your friends are like, you know, like personal trainers or whatever, uh, sometimes they don't want to go to readings. And I can only say that because I was a personal trainer before I was an emerging voice. Um, all right. True story. Angela touched on this idea of community at the end of her essay, but I think Sir Ron L. Dowell, snazziest dresser in the world, did an amazing job of talking about this in his essay. So let's hear from Ron Dowell. If I was a Beatle, I'd be George Harrison. <laughs> and that's because he sung My Sweet Lord that was written by Billy Preston. So it was after he was a Beatle, and I still play that today. This is titled Problem Child, Third Draft. <laughs> you grew up in Watson, Compton, California. Your childhood was blessed only with Compton's encyclopedias that your mom bought from a door-to-door -door salesman. The literary world didn't come to your side of the 10 freeway, but baseball cards, DC Comics, and Mad Magazines did. Those mags, Star Trek, and 007 sparked your interest in fantasy and fiction. Something shifted at 14 as you watched 
from atop your baseball backstop sanctuary. Stores surrounding your public project's home burned in August 1965. Later you read Greenlee's Spook Who Sat By The Door, which eventually led you to read Franz Kafka, and his bug is trying to get me to eat him. <laughs> and I will if he's full of protein. <laughs> There was Zora Neale Hurston and Octavia Butler. As a college student and county public servant, you, wrote, you write so much that, you're, that you develop a callus on your right middle finger. Even though you enjoy writing creative budget requests to fund alcohol and other drug programs, it never occurs to you that maybe you could, might, or should write fictional stories. Still, you feel compelled to write something, anything that might improve the community where you live. You tried journalism for a while, but it's like wearing a straitjacket. You retired from LA County, but not from public service. You stumbled across the writing program at UCLA and recalled how much you once loved reading fiction. In your classes, you meet Emerging Voices fellows. You speak, they speak highly of their experiences. You read their work, look at yours. Read theirs again, look at your own. <laughs> and decide to apply. <laughs> Since you are old, black, and male, things don't look promising. <laughs> Surprise, you're selected. <laughs> During orientation, you read this. It is Penn Center USA's hope that you will leave Emerging Voices Fellowship with skills and knowledge to launch a professional writing career. Your long-time interest in sci-fi gets you a mentor. As it happens, Sinana Reeve-Dew is your best friend's favorite author, and a year before, he turned you on to her work. She helps you make three short stories publishable. Now all you have to do is submit them. <laughs> you discover that writing short stories is one thing, reading them aloud is another. You know this because you cringe to the recording of your first reading at LACE, at the LACE welcoming party, and compare it to the much improved performance next time at Hotel Cafe that comes after a half-day session with voice coach Dave Thomas. There are author evenings with Victoria Chang, poet, Charles Yu, Dana Johnson, and David Francis, fiction writers, and Raina Grande and Francesca Leah Block, memorists. During the journey, you meet agents, publicists, publishers, copy editors. You work author sign-in at LA Times Festival of Books, where, having studied the presenter list, you prepare by bringing along books by Natasha Dion, Mark Savas, and LA Poet Laureate, and your Compton homegirl, Robin Cost Lewis. They all show, they all sign, and you smile a lot. <laughs> Evie offers so much that you sometimes struggle writing your stories. Thank God you're retired. The stipend helps and as does the Evergreen membership. You develop cohesive bonds with current and past EVs. You give back to the literary community with your volunteer project. You establish an eight-week how-to-write short story fiction at East Rancho Dominguez Library near Compton. Participants have stories to tell that won't otherwise get told. It's important to you that they are plugged into the literary scene in LA. You give them attention, 
nurture and encourage them as you've been nurtured, encouraged, and driven by Amanda Fetch Fletcher <laughs> and Natalie Green. It's still hard to believe that you'd receive so much from the Emerging Voices Fellowship for something that you would do for free. Attention encourages. That's why we must have literary in all arts in Compton and Watts. It's important that we express our experience for our, ben our benefit and for the world's. We learn through stories. We experience through stories. We are stories. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. I'm going to ask you a question, but it was based off a completely different essay than the one you just read. Hmm. What's that about? I want, yeah, right. Okay, we'll talk about this later. Uh, you took a lot of classes before you uh, came to us. Tell us how the master class and uh, the cohort, working with the cohort is different than taking classes on your own. There's a lot of similarities. Of course, you write a lot of stories. You workshop your stories. I think the main difference is that, well, two main differences. One is that the setting is much more intimate to work with Alex Espinoza. It was just four of us, and the level of writing within among the cohorts was at such a high level. That in the UCLA classes, you have people who are taking advanced writing three who belong in advanced writing one because they decided to skip. So that kind of, in a way, kind of bogs down the, the, uh, the work, really. So I would say the main difference is that you got Alex Espinosa one-on-one. Like today, he read from his book. And I listened to him read, and I thought, hell. That's, I'm, I aspire to be like that, but i got a lot of work to do. So it's much more intimate, and it's much more, and you can reach out and touch, you can ask questions of Alex, and I think he's going to, before too long, give us a way to continue to contact him. So it's much more intimate. Thank you. You can sit down now. Ron Dowell, everyone. So the, the, the last essay had much more focus on the volunteer project, so that's what I was going to try to like play off of, because um, we've got a couple components uh, that we haven't really talked about. Each emerging voice is expected to complete 25 hours of, of volunteer service. In the past, we've set up very structured uh, volunteer opportunities. This year, we were a little more free-flowing, and the result was that Ron was able to start these writing groups at his local library, uh, Frankie was able to start a writing group at his local bookstore. He lives in Long Beach. Uh, and then we were able to continue, you know, uh, Juby came from out of town. So it's like, it's a huge stress on someone to be like, hey, now you have to volunteer. Go forth and prosper. So we he, we set him up with 826LA and it was really easy because they're amazing. Um, it was easy for him to plug right in there. Uh, Natalie had a great experience with Pops the Club. Uh, and Angela worked with Right Girl. And, you know, I think you're going to be working with Right Girl for a while, right? It was a little bit of a longer through the summer. Okay, great. So, you know, while we do have uh, some more structured opportunities that you can step into, it's also a way for you to kind of bring the literary world to your own neighborhood. And I think that's really cool. Uh, each Emerging Voice is offered a $1,000 stipend. Uh, I know that's not, a lot, that's not a lot of money. But um, the, the other components of the fellowship that you are awarded, I think, are, you know, to sound like an American Express commercial, commercial priceless. 
Uh, we also got some extra funding this year, so we were able to give each EV a little bit of extra money. And, you know, perhaps maybe I found out last night that we got that funding again. So, yeah. Thank you. Pasadena Literary Alliance, we love you. So we have one more thing that I want to talk about because people ask me all the time. I just sat on a panel in Pasadena for Jervy Tervalon. Um, what, how do, does EV relate to an MFA? So you can't have an MFA, you can't have a minor in creative writing if you're going to be an EV. We want people that have been isolated from the literary community or establishment, so that means they don't have advanced degrees in English that, you know, perhaps they've taken classes but they're not really sure how to knit that, those stories together to a cohesive draft. A lot of EVs, though, uh, go on to get MFAs. And uh, we're going to bring 2012 EV Johnny Alfie up to the stage. Woo! He's also a musician, so he's used to this. <laughs> Tell us about getting your MFA, where you got it, how the two things com uh, compare to each other. Sure. Um, I think I think it makes total sense that you can't have an MFA to apply to the EV fellowship. I feel like it was a, a very natural progression, and I feel that um, I was a lot more prepared uh, for the MFA than I would have been had I not done the fellowship. Uh, workshopping is totally a skill uh, to learn. Truby said that, right? Yeah. So um, uh, I was and. Also, um, knowing that I don't like doing public readings, <laughs> I learned that during the EV fellowship, I did not do, I did not volunteer to read at any of the events in my MFA, so that was funny. But um, I went to Brooklyn College, so I studied with uh, Joshua Hankin, uh, Danelle Mangestu, and Ernesto Mestre Reed, um, and and they were all incredible teachers. Yeah. Yeah. The workload is a lot um, more extensive than what you would do in the EV fellowship. Uh, you, you read a lot during the EV fellowship, you read an ungodly amount during the MFA. Um, Josh Henkin uh, especially uh, gave us a big workload. I think we were reading like five to eight stories a week or something like that on top of a novel every week and then turning out 40 pages um, of the novel every time we did a novel workshop, um, craft class on top of it. It was full-time for two years. Uh, I was reading in line at the grocery store on the subway. It was New York, um, waiting for laundry. I was just, like, constantly ahead in pages. Yeah. yeah. Going to New York? Uh, I lived, uh, I lived in a brownstone with a verbally abusive, chain-smoking, bedridden lady named Susan. And I had, uh, I had bed bugs uh, when I first got there. Um, I was miserable. Um, but it's a uh, potential subject matter for, <laughs> for when I'm not so close to it. Um, but uh, <laughs> but I, love, I, love, I love New York. I think everybody should spend a few years in New York. At least I think there's an education in that alone. Um, it's different. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, the writing scene here uh, is a lot more accessible. And um, we were talking about, my, my cousin's here, we were talking about on the walkover, uh, coming to a reading in Los Angeles, you see like the whole writing scene. And you see familiar faces, and everybody knows you, and you say hi, and, and, uh, and you catch up. 
Osrin is a 2011 EV. She got me to apply to the fellowship. We workshopped together before uh, the fellowship, and like here we are, and it's just like it was before when we were workshopping together and learning how to write. So, yeah, yeah, it was great. What else? What uh, what did I learn? Okay, so ab- after all this, you know, you be you you become, you know, a part of a scene and, and, and you interact with other writers and you learn how to be gracious with other writers. Um, I feel like right now, after, after all is said and done, you know, when the fellowship ends, you wonder what to do. When the MFA ends, you wonder what to do. There's only one thing to do, and that's to keep writing. Um, you learn that there's not a right way or a right ideology to follow to be a writer. There's not a certain mold you have to fit uh, to be a writer. Um, as long as you're honest and, and, and you're writing the truth. One thing about the MFA, I liked it best when it treated writing as a science and it you know, broke down sentence structure by the syllable. Um, second person, how that you know, caters to your story, how it, hurt, how it might hurt your narrative. Uh, flashbacks, like really going to, into depth with that um, I think was the most valuable part and I think that uh, it turned me into a better reader, so for those reasons, are, those are the reasons that I'm happy uh, about the MFA. Um, and there are, there are a lot of essays that criticize the MFA for trying to turn you into a certain type of writer. Um, I think that could be true if you're not true to yourself and you have to know what your value systems are and you don't always have to you know, succumb to, you know, popular opinion all the time. You can, you could find the truth and what lives inside of you and then stay true to that because that's the only thing that you have to hold on to once you're done. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. Okay, it's question time. Do we have questions? You can either come up here to the mic or yell really loud or just stare at me blankly like, we have no questions. You know, like, that's how good this panel was. It's like you answered every question. There's a question. Do you want to speak to your internal challenges? Yeah, you're allowed. <laughs> no, sit down. We don't want to hear about your challenges. <laughs> Shut it. Um, I think that can mean a lot of things. You know, I, I have um, been trying... Daniel Lisi, who I quoted in my essay, that's Daniel Lisi of Not a Cult Media. Hi, Daniel. Um, I spent a lot of time editing myself, and before I tried poetry, I tried nonfiction much less effectively than Natalie, because you can't tell nonfiction without telling absolute truth, right? Um, and one of the challenges in telling absolute truth, that I think Natalie would tell you, is um, there are people who you impact, and you've got to make hard decisions about what you can say about whom. And honestly, one of the reasons I ended up writing poetry um, is because um, 
in poetry, you can talk about people that don't always recognize you're talking about them. Um, and I have a I have a history of abuse in my family, and um, there are things that have been challenging to talk about about that. That in poetry, I can come at it in a way that, for me personally, um, was not effective in nonfiction. So those are the kinds of, I think, you know, sort of structural or internal challenges, histories of abuse, um, family members not supporting the notion of you writing, institutions not supporting the notion of you writing. How many people here that want to be a writer have been told they shouldn't be a writer at some point in their lives? How many of you fought past that to show up here today? So, you know. Thank you. Uh, for, I'll say from my own perspective, I uh, was raised by blue collar people and they didn't think writing was something that was like an actual thing. It was something other people did. Um, we also have like an extensive history of mental illness in my family, suicides and murders and all kinds of crazy things that, um, that I, you know, I have to write about. But like you have to get past thinking that you can write about those things, that you're capable, that you're worthy, that your story deserves to be told, that you're not like a throwaway person. So for me, that's what it was. Did you have something you want to say? Uh, it was a question about internal uh, barriers to writing. Uh, I think for me, because I'm in education too, the internal barrier is like, especially coming from a memoirist perspective, the internal barrier is like, is this acceptable for me to be writing some of the things that I write about? And I think just being in a community of writers that are so supportive and so nurturing and so kind, it's so easy to push back that and to actually realize that um, ultimately what's important is the stories that we have to tell, especially if we're underrepresented, um, especially um, as people of color, especially as, um, for me, I feel like I have no identity because I'm so um, mixed that I think just being able to know that we, there are stories to tell and that our voices are important. And ultimately, if somebody is sees or hears something that I wrote, I think just the bravery of putting words out there is the is the higher level and higher path of living. Oh, I thought you were say You're just being helpful. Thanks, little Dougie. Do you want to talk? Speak to internal barriers. Okay, great. <laughs> Again, I said earlier, I always talk if given the opportunity. Put a mic in front of me. Um, has somebody who writes in a quote-unquote like post-confessional vein of poetry, like I definitely felt um, that kind of restriction as well. And I think that um, you have to understand that like even with the memoir, the truth of the story is more important than the truth of what happened. And so being able to try to define a, tr a big T truth, I like to talk about big T truth versus small T truth, and trying to find a big T truth truth moment in it, I think, is the most important thing. So for me, it wasn't, you know, the exact time that I was in the trap with my dad and, you know, he had, like, all the heads walking around. It wasn't exactly that. But it's about getting specific details, like the way my dad always keeps his false teeth on a nightstand and the way my dad always scratches that nub where his leg used to be. So those are the ones we need, but we don't need, like, the whole. So that kind of made me... Um, feel a little bit emancipated. So I think um, as far as like those kind of internal barriers, uh, barriers, I think, uh, just knowing that like 
You're trying to tell more than the truth. That might sound weird, but I mean that. You're trying to tell more than the truth. And when you can understand that, that's when you start getting that deepness, that vertical writing that I like to talk about instead of just horizontal writing. Thank you, sir. So lucky. Do we have any another question? Yeah. So the question is, does blogging or being a successful, <laughs> apparently Angela would like to answer this one. Uh, the question is, does being a successful blogger disqualify you from the fellowship? I'm going to let Angela answer this one. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's not a, a straight answer. Um, so when I was applying to, uh, to this fellowship, I had about a month left on the clock, and uh, that for 10 essays and 500 words a piece, I realized that was actually not as long as it sounds. And uh, so I had reached out to one of the past recipients, Lilium, and just asked, you know, what is this process like for you? She fortunately emailed me back. And then I asked, can I see the writer's CV that you submitted? Or what's a writer's CV? Because they asked for that too. And it's like, I have a resume with my work history. Does that count? And so she sends me the CV. And va-voom, it has like all of these fellowships and awards and places she's been published. And I'm thinking like, oh God, I have a blog and that's about as far as I've got to being published. Oh, the picture book. Um, and uh, which is self-published. It's not uh, traditionally published, by the way. So my fear was that I didn't have enough writing creds to show that I could qualify for this fellowship. Um, to which Lilium uh, assured me that that's fine. They want to see that you haven't been published widely. That's okay. And so to your question about is having a successful blog, does that count you out? No, um, in the sense that you are online, you are visible, and that's wonderful. However, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've been traditionally published, you don't have an MS MFA, but it shows that you're also making the effort and that you have a desire to be in this space. And I think for EV, that's what they're really looking for. They're looking for desire to join a community and a consistency in your writing. Angela M. Sanchez, everyone, our newest employee at PEN America. Um, basically, I think that you need to, ooh, I said basically only once. Yay! I use a lot of adverbs. Um, you need, you, you, you need to have, you, I can't even talk now because I just made that joke. Uh, just remember that you are being compared to however many other applicants. So your uh, lack of access or isolation, if, you, if we're looking at applicants that are just as talented, those things will be uh, compared to each other. And if you already have a large following, uh, if you have more publications than someone else, you know, if you're already kind of making your way as a writer as opposed to someone else who's really struggling, who's at a similar t level of talent or skill or, uh, you know, completion or like a place in their career there's a possibility that person would be chosen instead but that should not dissuade you from applying because you don't know who you're going to be up against okay you just you don't look satisfied how could you not be satisfied by that crazy answer it was amazing 
Okay. Oh yeah, it's it's calling something up for you personally. Because really, it, you know, it's it, we just want to make sure that the person who needs the opportunity most is the person who gets it. So that's that's kind of how we're judging, I would say. Did I see hands? Do you guys just want to eat the plantains and drink the vodka? Yes. No, we do not. And last year, and the year before. Right? Four years we only had one, and then the, and then Octavia was one, and then the year before, uh, I think it was uh, Victor and Brandon Jordan Brown were together. Uh, it, you know what? If you are amazing, tell all your amazing poet friends to apply, because we'll take more than one. We would love that. You know, uh, F. Douglas Brown says all the time that if he ever wins, when he wins the lottery, there's going to be two poets. Um, basically, it's just that's just how it shakes out. And that's, you know, if the quality work comes in and we have more poets, then we would absolutely take two, three, whatever, however it shakes out. But it's definitely like who needs this um, opportunity the most. We look at their application um, and, you know, if it shakes out that there's only one poet, then we, and it, it, it has not been easy for us to figure out how to serve the one poet, as you well know, because you did step into the master class last year. And we tried to switch that up a little bit. Um, so it would actually be better if there were two, because, you know, everybody needs a friend. <laughs> right? You gotta have friends. Did that answer that? Yeah. Cool. Uh, did you have a question? I can't tell you that. It's a closely guarded secret. If I told you, I'd have to kill all of you. Hundreds. Like, seriously. Hundreds. That's it. Uh, I might be able to share that information in the future, but for, for now, it's, some, it's, it's a closely guarded secret. I don't know. Yeah. Because we don't want you to get scared. Like, you don't be like, oh my god, there's like 5,000 applicants, I'm never going to get it. We don't want that. Not that there's 5,000 applicants. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Like, is this topic of the zeitgeist and that's why this person should be an EV? Uh, no. Yeah, no. Right? That just seems real wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we'll take all those stories. Bring them. Yeah. Yes. I love that you asked that. Why, yes, sir. There are a couple of other events coming up. Where do you happen to live? Oh, I'm sorry. These are Orange County events. 
but Orange County is a nice place. There's a train. Um, July 11th, we'll be at 1888 Center in Anaheim. Uh, a couple of the EVs are going to be on a podcast, and they're going to answer some questions. Yeah, you won't have to drive so far. You're like, I'm done with this. Yeah, I know you do. Azrin did our uh, meet and greet at Makara Center for the Arts last year, which we will be doing again if you would like to come. July 7th, 1 to 3 p.m. I think there's free parking. There will be snacks. So it'll be a similar situation like this, um, but the two public readings, the, the, they've passed. So the, the mid-program reading was in April. So this will be the last time, I'm going to use an adverb, ostensibly, that um, these guys will be reading together. You know, Juby is uh, leaving. Juby, where are you going? It's interesting that we had a conversation about MFAs because, um... Yeah, get rid of it, Seriously. Because, um, parallel to this process, I applied for MFA programs. And I think part of the reason I did that is because, and I think part of what makes this group successful, Angela's clearly our alpha, but other than that, what makes this group <laughs> successful, she is, she just is. We all know it. Um, is that we're particularly driven at a particular moment in life. And I knew that at the moment I was applying to this, I was going to write more. I was going to write somehow. And one of the ways I explored doing that was an MFA program. So in the fall, I'm going to Miami, the University of, for my MFA. Thank you, thank you. So interesting because I think like we all decided like Soleil was the alpha last year and she also left to get her MFA. Maybe it's like something that happens, right? Hmm. She was like the undercover alpha. Scary. Do we have, sorry, do we have any uh, other questions? I will say though that uh, uh, there are a lot of local reading series and um, if you follow the Emerging Voices Facebook page, uh, if you follow these guys on their social media, uh, this is a tight-knit family. The LA Literary Community is a tight-knit family so you'll see a reader um, reading at the Rorschach reading series or someone will be moderating at the table or um, someone else will be teaching a workshop. So you'll see, you know, the, the fellowship has has far-reaching arms. I was going to say tentacles, but that's creepy. Um, you'll see these folks around. So I would definitely say, you know, follow our Facebook page. We try to make sure when people have news that we're sharing it. And that's, you know, for even people that aren't EVs, but anyone who's been an author evening host or has been a mentor in the past or whatever. So you're able to really see kind of what's going on in Los Angeles and get an idea of what it means to be in community in Los Angeles and be a writer. Good. My God, you guys are like the hush. Well, thank you so much for coming out. I really appreciate it. Thank you, panel. Look at these, my truffles. Thank you, 2018 EVs. Your essays were amazing. Uh, I have to say that if you do, don't get up yet, I got stuff to say. If you do have questions, um, Melina is working the uh, Facebook Live. We didn't have any Facebook Live questions. That's sad. Oh, well. Uh, Melina is also our intern this year for EV. So if you have questions, please talk to Melina about the fellowship. She just got a new email address. What is that? 
EV intern Los Angeles at pen.org. She would love to answer your questions at length. It's her job. So, uh, thank you, Miss Stacy, on the dranks. Three years in running. Feels like 10,000. It's cool. Take that as you will. Love you. Uh, Miss Natalie, thank you so much. Natalie. Natalie Green in the house. Natalie makes sure that like I get places on time. Um, and I wanted to actually say thank you to uh, the New York office because we're doing things a little differently this year and we're hoping that it's going to increase our reach. Um, and we get to talk to all of those people, the comms team, Naji, Michelle, uh, Give me some names. Anoush. Yeah, that's good. All right, Julian, thank you so much. Um, and if you have any questions, please mingle. It looks like there's some vodka. Um, come up to somebody. Uh, Johnny, 2012 EV, thanks for coming from Texas. Rain, 2012 EV in the back, thanks for coming out. 2017 EVs, Jessica Circling. Pete, Shinnery. Azrin, 2011. Yes, this is a fam, guys. So grab somebody and talk about the fellowship, okay? Thank you, Skylight, yeah. I did at the top, Lynn. I did, I did. I can't thank you enough, Skylight Books. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.